0: Thank you for downloading our podcast. We are tempted to pursue a more tangible religion. We can fall into a trap and think we need more than Christ, but Hebrews assures us that Christ is all we need. Join us as we study Hebrews to learn more about the great Melchizedekian priest who presides in heaven. I think when we go through the book of Hebrews, it's Striking to me how much time the author of Hebrews spends developing the significance of Christ and laying out the significance of the gospel. It really drives home the reality of who we are as people, that we have a tendency to our shame and to our sorrow, to forget who Christ is. We fall in our own ability to rely on herself and our her own strength, our own wisdom. We have a tendency to think God is distant and, and He's one who's unapproachable. And yet Hebrews teaches us quite the opposite. And as I mentioned, these, these verses are transitional verses. And if I was going to write a commentary in Hebrews, I would call verse 19 basically the start of the come-to-Jesus meeting. This is where the author of Hebrews is sort of sugarcoating the reality of what he's about to say and saying, listen, I'm about to say some pretty harsh things to you and I'm inviting you to truly look within yourself and to think about the reality of these things. Because basically for the rest of chapter 10, it's pretty uh, strong. It invites us to truly think about who we are in light of Christ. And so when we hear this, we may say, well, if our sins are covered and we have this new relationship with Christ, can't we just live any way we want? I mean, isn't that what the author of Hebrews has told us? Or are we those who are basically set free and, and, and as the Lord's redeemed, that now we sort of build up credit to make sure that, that we're worthy to enter into his presence? How, how does this work? So as we look at this, we'll see first we have our confidence. Secondly, we draw near. And last, we live out our calling. And so in terms of having confidence, look at verses 19 and 20. And as I mentioned, he spends a lot of time laying out the gospel. And I think it's very important to understand that because so often we think, well, we just understand the gospel. But the reality is we don't. And we have to understand how we were created. We're created in the covenant of works. That's been transgressed. Our call was to prove our worthiness to be faithful to God. We failed. God says he will provide another to restore that relationship, to take the sanction, the death we deserve, so we can come into his presence. And so what happens? Well, we have a tendency to become legalists. We have a tendency to say, well, if you do X, Y, and Z, you you, you know that you know Christ. Well, this is what the Pharisees did. Christ, Matthew 23, tells them they do a good job of straining out the gnat, but they swallow the camel. In other words, uh, the irony of legalism, we pay attention to these little, small, minuscule details, but, but we miss the substance. Or the other way we can go is we can go to a place where we can think maybe we're so special or so significant God just wants to have a special relationship and just sort of sees us as these adorable creatures that it really doesn't matter what we do. Well, that's not really true either because we are called to live out of gratitude. I think one question we can ask ourselves if we want to know where we fall in this spectrum is to ask ourselves a very heartfelt question and and a bit of a dangerous question. It's a question of how do I know I have Christ? How do I know I am in Christ? Now, pay attention when you ask that question, where your mind goes. Because our tendency many times is to say, well, I know I'm in Christ because I've done. I know I'm in Christ because I do. I know I'm in Christ because I've accomplished, right? We we start going there, starting to tally up our good works. But is that what Hebrews tells us to do? Is that where Hebrews tells us to fundamentally start in terms of answering that question. How do I know I'm in Christ? The answer to the question Hebrews lays out for us is what does the gospel say? I take hold of Christ by faith. I believe He is my Redeemer. I believe He is a Melchizedekian priest. I believe He has taken away my sins. I believe He has sprinkled me to new life in His blood and I'm set apart and He's seated in the glory of heaven in the heavenly tabernacle. That's where we need to start, because once we start at that premise, we start looking at ourselves in a more objective way, don't we? Because now our sin doesn't become so threatening, because I can say, well, I'm in Christ, the sins are covered, and and I do need to conform to my Lord as the end of verse 25 gets to that point, or, or 25 gets to that point. I do need to conform to my Lord and live out of gratitude. And as I live out of gratitude, I need to honestly look at myself, but I can only look at myself knowing that I am set apart in Christ. And so when when we hear these words, and, and we understand this call and exhortation for us to meet together, and we have the author of Hebrews breaking down sort of this tragedy that Israel wants to go back to a tangible worship. It reminds us of where do we get our worship? How do we come to realize and develop our worship theology? Well, what did the reformers want to fundamentally do? They wanted to go back to the original synagogue worship. They wanted to say, what are the elements of worship in the synagogue? How did they worship God? What was the the command? How are we to honor our Lord? And so it's important to put that in our backdrop that we're not just willy-nilly coming up with what we do, that that we want to have a basis for it. We go back to the synagogue worship. And that's fundamentally what the author of Hebrews is saying. Follow this worship. Continue to come together in your Lord and understand you have a priest. And so how do we know that we have this priest? Notice verse 19. Starts with the therefore, brothers. In other words, it's not... Therefore outsiders, therefore Goems, or therefore nations, brothers. So you you have a synagogue most likely comprised of Gentiles and Jews. You got the Jews saying we got these pig-eating Gentiles invading our, our worship. They don't understand who Yahweh is, or or the name, Hashem, as they would say, the name. They don't understand him. They don't worship him. We worship him. And Hebrews is saying, listen, all of us gather together in confidence. And and what do we have confidence in? What what does this mean? Why do we have confidence? What has the author of Hebrews told us? 9 verse 7, Christ is the one who has offered this bloodshed once for all. The priest is the one who would offer blood for himself. It isn't something that lasts. It isn't something that endures. Christ is the one who offers his blood once for all. 9 verse 17, the assurance that as Christ offers his blood that we have an eternal redemption. An eternal redemption. A one-time offering of blood. He's the one who dwells in the presence and face of God, tearing down, taking down the curtain so the most holy place is open wide for us. So when we understand what he has said about Christ and we have this confidence, this isn't arrogance. This isn't entitlement. This is understanding as I take hold of Christ by faith, recognizing my life is only found in him, I can draw near to the true God of heaven. What was pictured, what was figured through all those Old Testament types, those shadows that passed away, were a mere reflection of the true heavenly tabernacle built by God. So the author of Hebrews is not trying to tear us down in this Come to Jesus meeting. He's saying, stop thinking you are worthy on account of things you have done. Our worthiness is only because of what Christ has done. And how does he begin with Christ? Remember I said uh, the introduction to Hebrews, those first few verses in chapter 1 are so significant. And I think it's important for us to take our minds and go back to that. Because this Christ is a prophet. He's a prophet who has spoken in the last days by his Son. God has made known his purpose in him, as we find in the very beginning of this letter. Remember we said Psalm 40 being applied to Christ, where the Lord gives him a body, so that Christ is wanting to be the perfect sacrifice. So the very prophetic nature of Christ being the incarnate Word, That the Word of God speaks of Christ even under the Old Testament. So Hebrews is saying, understand the intention of Moses. He's not speaking of this, this microcosm understanding of Israel having its uniqueness in and of itself. But they're picturing the bigger reality of a people. Communing with a God who is holy. A people who enter into relationship with this God on account of the God taking away his anger, his wrath. So that his people can draw near. We think of Christ not only as a prophet, but Christ is also the priest. The one who is a Melchizedekian priest. We think of Christ being the king. The one who is seated at the right hand of God. 1 verse 2 makes a purification for sins. 1 verse 3. So the very opening of this is calling our attention to see our only worthiness is found in Christ. And so when the author of Hebrews in verse 19 is saying, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, the author of Hebrews is saying, think about the argument I have laid out from the very beginning of this letter and that your confidence is not in you. Your confidence has to be in Christ Jesus. And where do we draw near? This is something too where we can uh, lose sight of it. It's not into the holy place. But holy places. So you may say, well, why is that plural? Isn't there one heaven? Remember we talked about Christ being in the presence of God. You know, was presented in the Old Testament as the highest heaven, the place where God dwells in all his glory, above the firmament, above this creation. And so the holy places is, is a picture of that priest in the day of atonement going into the first chamber of the tabernacle. Or yes, he, he could go in. He can go in there often. But he can't go into the second chamber, the most holy place. So the picture here is that Christ dwells and lives in this tabernacle. Not by making an offering for himself. Not by shedding blood as a priest had to do. He's already prosecuted that point. Because remember, the continual day of atonement doesn't just tell us sin's taken away. It tells us sin's not taken away then it has to continually be repeated because the one-time offering has not been done. So the Day of Atonement gives relief, but it also gives discouragement. It's a prayer we can have sympathy for, saying, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Israel, come, our Messiah King, our priest, take away our sin. Is the purpose of the Day of Atonement as Hebrews lays us out. So now the assurance that he's entered into the holy places, dwells in the heavenly tabernacle, the curtain torn down. All the imagery is intended to come to mind as he uses this language. But as we draw near, and we have this call for confidence to enter into this place, we may say, well, why is that significant? Christ is in heaven. He's indifferent. I want the tangible. The tangible assures me God's really with me. This calls to our attention what the author of Hebrews has told us. Because he's told us 3 verse 6, Christ is over the house, therefore we hold fast our confession. 4 verse 16, draw near to the throne of grace in confidence. So we have this echo back to that reference. We don't draw near to the throne of judgment. We draw near to the throne of grace. You think of the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant placed in the most holy place in the tabernacle. This is where Christ presides. But instead of waiting for a priest to go in there once a year, we draw near to this place in Christ whenever we want. That's the invitation. Hebrews is saying you have a priest who is seated in the glory of heaven in the presence of God permanently. By his worthiness, draw near to that throne of grace. He is a priest who sympathizes with your weaknesses. You are not alone. You are not sojourning aimlessly under the sun. That's what he wants to call to our attention in 10 verse 19. Calling these things to our mind, to our focus. And the confidence then is to understand that for the sake of Christ, we can do this. And he tells us then, Not only do we draw near, but we are those who draw near by the blood of Christ. He has done this. He is our priest. So again, it echoes for us, 4 verse 14, the high priest, the great priest, calling this to our attention. See, the fundamental struggle we have, because we can say, well, yeah, this is what he said. Yeah, he said that because we struggle to remember this. It's important that we begin with this understanding of who we are in Christ. What Christ has done. Who we are as struggling people. How we are weak. Our fundamental problem is we want to go to Mount Carmel, don't we? The very battle of the gods where you see the priests of Baal battling it out with Elijah the prophet and saying, but I want the idolatry that's offered there with Baal. And Hebrews is saying, no you don't. That didn't end well for them. You want the God of heaven who's greater than all those false gods. And so the author of Hebrews is saying don't lose your way in the midst of the wilderness and saying my priest has abandoned me. The author of Hebrews is saying that's a problem with humanity. That's not a problem with redemption. Not a problem with Christ. Not a problem with God. That's our problem, our perspective. He presides and rules in the most holy places after shedding His blood one time that's what makes us worthy and so the call in verse 19 and this call here is to understand verse 19 and 20 the shedding of the blood opening the curtain by this flesh the purpose of christ taking on the body psalm 40 all this language is calling to our mind to our attention to our focus we draw near to the most holy place for the sake of christ It is in Christ Jesus, our heavenly priest, who can sympathize with our weaknesses. As the one who resides in heaven, we come to him. He is not a priest who has abandoned us or forsaken us. We need to be conscious of this reality, that our faith is not powerless, that our priest is not weak, that our priest is the one who invites us, calls us, exhorts us to come to him in the midst of our weakness, in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our struggle, bringing it to his feet at the heavenly altar in the heavenly sanctuary. But going on, the author of Hebrews, as he's going on and preparing us for this come-to-Jesus meeting, sort of summarizing the reality of what's going on here. Verses 21 and 22, he goes on, Since we have a great high priest... (laughs) Right? Again, emphasizing. It's like, okay, he's Melchizedek. We understand this. And Hebrews is saying, no, we have a great high priest. He's saying meditate on that. Think about that reality. It's not the priest of Israel. It's not the priest of Levi. It's not the priest of Abraham. We Gentiles have a great high priest. This is a call for us to understand the privilege of this Christian life. It's not we need to just try and do better or we need to get better. Now, obviously, we need to be sanctified. We need to conform to Christ. But the call here is where does this start? Where do we begin to find this improvement and conformity? It starts with the great high priest. And he wants us to understand this. And as we have this great high priest... As we hear this in 21, as recalling for us, 3, verse 6, again, that reminder that as we are those who are in Christ, we are those who are part of who he is. He is this priest who presides over the house. So this brings us to that point where it says we have the great high priest over the house of God. Now in chapter 3, that's kind of dangled out there. It's showing Christ is superior to Moses uh, because Moses is a priest in the house. Christ is a priest over the house. Okay, we we understand that. But now the author of Hebrews is saying, no, we have a great high priest over the house of God. Who is the house of God? Well, Hebrews tells us we are the house of God, his people. This means Jew and Gentiles are brought together into the one house of God. And so this is something that is intended to truly overwhelm us with, with the graciousness of our God. That it's not that the house of God is something hypothetical. It's not just a church building where we worship, which is beneficial. It's great. But we have to see ourselves as the house of God. We are those built together in Christ. And the great high priest presides over us, sanctifying us, making us worthy to draw near into the presence of God. And so when you have these members of the synagogue saying, well, we just want to have the Gentiles worship in this place. We want to go back to our tangible Old Testament religion that we had with Moses and Aaron. That's how we really worship. Hebrews is saying, but you're not understanding. Now that Christ has come, we're all brought together in one house of God. This is who we are worshiping and made worthy in the one Christ. And so we say, well then, what does it mean? Well, this is where we start moving into that exhortation. Because again, it's not just Christ has redeemed us. I can live any way I want. I mean, we we are called to conform to Christ. We are called to grow. We are called to to desire to live more and more a, a godly life for the honor and glory of our Lord. But how do we draw near? With a true heart. It's a heart that's not divided. We're called to draw near in the assurance of faith, confidence of who Christ is. We draw near with clean hearts, uh, sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. We are those who draw near as those who are washed with pure water. So let's, let's go through this and see what the author of Hebrews is reminding us. The drawing near is referring back to Hebrews 4 verse 16. And that's a reminder that we draw near to the throne of grace. Again, we're hearing this theme that's driven home. Christ is seated on a throne. It's not a throne where he just slaps us and smacks us down. It is a throne of grace. A place where we truly come, we bring our sins, we confess our sins, and we truly ask our Lord to conform us to his will. This is where our sanctification has to start we got to start with that understanding. These are my sins. This is what I struggle with. Lord, you need to change my heart, right? And then we proceed in the confidence of that. We want the Lord to change us. Not drawing near to the throne of grace is a horrible place, but drawing near to a priest who is sympathetic. You think of the rich or the uh, publican and the Pharisee. Pharisee boasting about the greatness and privilege God has of calling him, the publican saying, Lord, this is all my issues. These are all the things I can just remember I've done this week. Have mercy, conform me, take these things away from me, right? It's the difference of knowing you need a priest versus thinking the priest is honored to have you as one of his redeemed. And so this drawing near is important, that we're drawing near to a priest who has made a definitive redemption. But we draw near with a true heart, That is a heart that is turned into the Lord. And so it's not a heart where it's like, well, I'm going to do a Hail Mary prayer and kind of just hope in this God, but then I'm going to trust in all these other things and all these other gods. But I'm going to incorporate Him as a highest God. The call is that our hearts are tuned into Him, seeing Him as a sole God, as a sole Lord and the sole King that we are called to worship and follow. The true heart also seems to make an echo back to Jeremiah 31, 31 and following with the promise of the Lord writing His laws upon our hearts. This is our consciousness of wanting these things being part of us. This is why we study the Word of God. This is why we join together and we partake of the means of grace. This is why we meditate on who our God is and we pray to Him. That we want His will, His ways, His wisdom becoming second nature to who we are. We're asking God to write these things on our heart, to continue uh, to prod us. And so that's the point of the true heart, tuned into God, focus on God, recognizing who we are, recognizing who Christ is. The full assurance of faith. Now faith, as we say, is an instrument whereby we take hold of Christ and all his benefits, Right? So knowledge, conviction, these things that, that, that we know. We know who God is. We live in light of it. Knowing in terms of the Hebrew is truly knowing God, experientially, cognitively, that we truly want to live in the honor and glory of our God. And so we draw near, not first coming to Christ and saying, Lord, I've done X, Y, and Z. Therefore, I'm worthy to come into your presence. The full assurance of faith is I can only come into your presence because of my Melchizedekian priest. Thank you, O Lord. Now, as I draw near, these are the things that I bring before you, not just my sins, but even calling attention to needs of those around us and truly having that confidence that because of Christ, we draw near in the presence of God. Going on then, heart sprinkled clean. Now, some individuals take this to mean baptism. Now, I I'd argue baptism is regarding the washing of the water. And I think there's an intention that the author of Hebrews is calling to our, our minds, our, our, our consciousness here, and understanding how our hearts are sprinkled clean. It's not just us sprinkled clean, but our hearts, right? That, that's the language he's using. So this is the inner being of who we are. Hebrew would be the bowels, uh, in, in Greek, it's the heart, it's the inner recesses of man. But let's look and see what Hebrews has told us. In 9 verse 13, the sprinkling of blood did not do anything. And he's talking about the old covenant, you know, sprinkling the outward or outside of man. 9 verse 19, the inauguration of the first covenant with Exodus 29. You have Leviticus 8, where the people are sprinkled with blood. Even the Old Testament vessels are cleansed, but it's not definitive. And so the sprinkling of blood in the contrast of Hebrews is a one-time sprinkling of Christ's blood that the Old Testament at best cleansed or took away the profanity or what deserved wrath in this age outwardly. But it doesn't do anything internally. So the author of Hebrews wants us to understand we too have that sprinkling of blood like Israel standing before Moses. Moses. But what they had was merely an outward cleansing. It didn't really accomplish anything. It communicated sin. It communicated wrath. It communicated falling short. But it didn't communicate resolution. It didn't communicate the Lord truly taking away everything that needed to be taken away. A clean heart that is sprinkled means that the blood of Christ doesn't just take away the outward profanity and, and, and grossness of who we are in our sin, but it takes away the very inner problem of a heart that is naturally turned against God that is now transformed in having this true life. Now the true washing that's going on uh, with the pure water is probably referring to the initiation rite of baptism. And referring to the the recollection that now, as the church goes out, this is the intention of the synagogue, the intention of the gathering together of God's people to worship the one true Christ, tuned into Him, following Him, and finding life in Him. And so this is then uh, that understanding of this transition and understanding that Christ is not powerless. Uh, we are not distant, we are not abstracted from our Lord, but we draw near. But now verses 23 through 25, where we have here this call for us to draw near. This is where he's going to build on these verses. So again, he reminds us of who we are in Christ. He's giving us some serious exhortation or starting with exhortation. We have in verse 23 this reminder that we hold fast our confession. So we're holding fast not merely to words. The confession is Christ. We confess him to be our priest. This is what he has prosecuted deliberately uh, to the point of of saying, I get it already, right? I mean, chapter 9 being the climatic chapter. So the confession is we're holding fast to Christ. That's the confession he wants us to understand. As we take hold of Christ by faith, we draw near to the throne of grace, we enter into the most heavenly tabernacle. So Hebrews wants us to to understand that. We're holding fast to this. Now the confession of our hope, again, he's using this language of hope. Now hope isn't some pie-in-the-sky idealism that, you know, I really hope tomorrow's better, or I hope things work out. The the hope that's used here is also grounded in Christ's priestly work. It's the assurance that Christ is the one who's going to transition us from this age to the age to come. Christ is the one who pleads our case in the heavenly tabernacle as our priest. And so he's saying, hold fast to this. This is where you have to be oriented. Now, as we hold fast to this faith, we do it without wavering. Uh, this is like James talking about the individual who's in the sea, tossed to and fro. You think of a boat in the midst of a storm, where it keeps get turn, it gets turned around. It's not going in one direction. It's continually tossed around and and just basically following the whims of the water, the whims of whatever may be. And Hebrews is saying we have to have that anchor in Christ. We have to have that focus and orientation always in that premise, my Lord has redeemed me. My Christ is my priest. This is my hope. I'm going to live in light of him, believing his word to be true, and orienting my life in his one-time priest, right? And why is that? Because he was promised is faithful. This is the significance of Hebrews citing the Old Testament. Remember this passage? Remember what God said here? Remember what God said here? Remember how God promised this? He's saying this is what Christ has done. So he's saying we, we hear what God has said. Christ has brought it to pass. And so he wants us again to, to let our minds dwell on this reality, to truly let this soak into who we are. My God is faithful. My God does not waver. My God is firm. My God is the one who brings me to glory. This is who he is. So as he says that, he says, Now, as as we know this is true, let us now figure out how to stir up one another. Now, the stir up is actually kind of interesting language that that he uses here. Uh, Because the stirring up is actually a strong emotional reaction, as we find in Scripture. Uh, This could be angry. This could be a heated disagreement. Uh, This can be times of persuasion. And so this, this is pretty strong in terms of this stirring up. And so what does he want? Does he want us to sort of be condescending and making sure we rule over one another and make sure that the other person's really living out the gospel the way we want? Well, this reminder here is for us to truly be so focused and oriented on Christ that we truly are having this passion of wanting to live for our Lord. That that as we do this, it's it's evident that living for Christ is what orients us. Now again, this is out of gratitude. We're encouraging one another to do this. uh, Seeking to, to truly desire to love. Starting with our love for Christ as we go about our days. But it has to start with us. This is what our Lord says in the Sermon on the Mount. How do we get charged up? How do we get recharged? Think about your Melchizedekian priest. If you want to know, why do I want to live for this God and die to self? Well, when the Lord gives us his laws, he's not trying to deprive us of anything, is he? He's not trying to harm us. He's showing us the way of wisdom. Now, we don't do this perfectly, but why do we continue to grow and conform to this? Because our Melchizedekian priest is at work in us. And I believe my God is faithful and I know what he tells me to stay away from is harmful for me, and so therefore I want to be stirred up to live unto him. Right? This is the exhortation. Don't see Christ as a second-rate priest. He is the priest. Everything that they have been convicted to look to has been pointing to Christ. Going on then, as we stir one another up to love and good works, this is that desire that we truly desire to conform to Christ. I love again, Our catechism puts this, out of gratitude, truly out of gratitude. I'm redeemed. I do this out of gratitude, out of joy for my Redeemer. But notice now, as he says, not neglecting to meet together. Now, this is significant language as well that's kind of lost as we bring this over into the English. But the actual language here is a language of synagoguing. It says, do not forsake synagoguing together. So this is where we think, well, the synagogue was for Israel. No, synagogue means gathering together, worship, coming before the Lord, worshiping the king. So the synagoguing together is our gathering together in the presence of God to truly worship him. This is again where we find these love and and good works and, and we say not neglecting to meet together. So it's that reminder, we're that community. We're that house of God. We're that synagogue where Christ rules over us. We're not abstracted from our Savior. We're not alone, even though sometimes we may deceive ourselves, whether it's satanic temptation, weakness of the flesh. We deceive ourselves into thinking we are alone. But what's the problem? Some have fallen away. And the author of Hebrews is saying there's some that have failed to meet together. And he's going to go on and address apostasy. This is why he talked about the wilderness journey and and, and the wilderness community. The warning, they fell away. The author of Hebrews is saying, don't fall away from your Christ. Don't turn from him. And so the fundamental encouragement here is basically exhortation. What are we exhorting each other? Fundamentally, don't turn away from your Lord. Don't see your Lord as tyrannical. See the blessings of your God. Don't see His regulations as to how we live out of gratitude as, as something that's burdensome or tyrannical or horrible. Yes, it certainly shows our sin. Yes, it does drive us to Christ. They don't deny that. But it also shows us how to live a life of gratitude unto Him. And as we live these things out, there is a promise. There is a greater life. I'm not saying it's health and wealth. I'm not saying everything's going to fall into place. But our attitude's our orientation through this age become radically changed because we recognize we are sojourners through this age. We recognize we have a propensity to fall away like the first Israelites. We have a propensity to grumble in the midst of the wilderness. We have a propensity to the goodness of God. We're tempted to, to make God prove himself. And Hebrews is saying, be aware of this. See your priest. Live exclusively unto him. Because he says now, there's that warning. And and what do we have with Israel and Christ with Israel? It's a warning to us. And it's a pretty strong warning. And so hopefully I don't water it down in any way. The day drawing near. And the reason this is a strong warning, because when Christ walks this earth, what what does John the Baptist say? Hey, don't you dare trust in Abraham as our father or Moses as our prophet or whatever it may be because Christ can raise up stones that will sing praises to God. And so it's an understanding we're not adorable children in the sense that, you know, we're just so precious that whatever we do is just adorable in His sight. The other here is saying, listen, you turn away from the gospel. You turn away from Christ. You are in a bad place place. A place where when the day of of judgment draws near, your Lord may say, I never knew you. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, listen, there's big things at stake here when you start denying Christ and his priestly work. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, bow your knee to your Savior. Understand this is where you find life. And we find life as we meet together as a synagogue, house of God, presiding together. Fundamentally, what is our desire? To want to see one another at the heavenly banquet. We are prone to wander. We are prone to struggle. And so Hebrews is saying, how do we re-anchor ourselves? By contemplating, meditating on Christ, the goodness of our God and wanting to conform to his will. Because we know our ways are ways of folly. Our ways are ways of death and sin. But The way of God is a true way of life. And this only happens in Christ Jesus, the great Melchizedekian priest. So we conclude then where we began. If our sins are covered, we have this relationship with our God, Well, what does that fundamentally mean? Well, the reality is we're not called to live any way we want. We're called to live as redeemed in Christ. And where I began with that question, it's an important question, I think, for us to come back to often. How do I know I'm saved? How do I know I have Christ? And listen to your internal dialogue. Seriously, take time. Listen to your internal dialogue. Are you saying because I've done X, Y, and Z? You're resting in your works. It has to start where Hebrews reminds us. Because I hold fast to my Melchizedekian priest. And as I hold fast to my Melchizedekian priest, I have life and I draw near in the heavenly sanctuary to the living God. Why do I live unto him? Because I draw near to the living God. And I want to conform to him because his word is true. His ways are faithful. And I wander. And so why do we encourage one another? It's not to make ourselves feel better. It's because we understand we are all prone to wander. We all struggle. We all want something more tangible. That's the challenge of the wilderness sojourn. But The author of Hebrews is assuring us with a warning, the day drawing near. What does he also say in chapter 19, chapter 9? That day drawing near, Christ has doubtless sin once for all. And so this day drawing near, yes, it comes to us as a warning. Don't fall away in the wilderness like the first wilderness, exodus generation. But it comes to us also as a time of hope. This struggle, this loneliness we may sometimes think we feel where God has turned on us. We're invited to recognize He hasn't. But even as we may feel as if we're alone, it's the assurance that the very thing we taste by faith and the power of the Spirit now as we're joined and united to Christ, we will have in the fullness when our Lord comes again. For that day is also drawing near where we have a privilege of being gathered around at the heavenly banquet table, surveying the holy, beautiful, heavenly city as the Lord's redeemed. Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing church that seeks to cultivate community around our Savior. If you desire to learn more about Christianity, please join us for worship each Sunday at 10 in the morning or 6 in the evening. You can do this in person or on our live stream. You can also utilize our archived sermon series on our website, urcbelgrade.com or subscribe to our current sermon series through Most Common Podcatchers. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.